listeners and welcome to Pop Screen, part of the Geek Show podcast network. We are that corner of the Geek Show that likes to deal with movies either starving about or by pop stars. No, the podcast covers such a broad range of musical and cinematic genres from country and western to hip-hop, from documentaries to science fiction. I'm your host, Graham Williamson. I'm a filmmaker and a critic for Horrified.com and the Geek Show website. I've been joined this week by... Uh, Ewan Gledo, hello. <laughs> I sounded so unsure of my own name. <laughs> <laughs> what do you do, Ewan, if you if you can remember? What do I do? I am um, I, I write. I think yes. I am. Um, no, I, I write for cult following Geek Show Clapper, um, uh, Daily Star, Spark Sunderland, uh, Newcastle World, all sorts of places. Really, you can Indeed. go and read my nonsense everywhere. Yes. <laughs> Let us take you back, listeners to the halcyon long-gone days of spring 2021. England was ending its second lockdown, a new podcast called Popscreen was entrancing the nation, and everyone expected Chadwick Boseman to win the third posthumous Oscar in Academy Awards history. The fact that this didn't happen, despite the Best Actor Award being moved specially to the end of the night, might be the only accidental trolling of ceremony producer Steven Soderbergh's career. But now that's all in the past, we thought we'd turn back to the film at the centre of it all. A film about the blues, a film about race, a film about the importance of a good pair of shoes. This week we are asking, have you checked out Ma Rainey's Black Bottom? Me? Yeah, per- personally. Oh, yeah, right. yeah. <laughs> I, I'm starting a new thing where I ask co-hosts if they've watched the film. It just it, it, it gets around some shit. Have I watched the film? Uh, <laughs> yes, I did. I did watch the film. Again, I, I, I watched this when it first came out. Um, so did I, yeah. Way, way back when. Back in the good old days, eh? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Won't see the likes of those days again. I have to admit, I asked partly because I have still... I don't think I've exhausted the comedy potential of this film's title yet. Oh, th- there's a lot we can run through, yeah. If, yeah. if you want to get it out of your system, like, now's the time. <laughs> just, I just that You'd think it would become sort of tacky and infantile at some point, but no. Oh Never no, the, the word no. bottom, as as expressed by Despicable Me, is infinite <laughs> resource for humour. It will make you billions. <laughs> so yeah, you saw it before, presumably, as you were um, waiting in the run-up to the last Oscars, right? I did, yeah. So it was it was kind of like the, one of the few films I'd not seen that was sort of nominated in the big categories, and it was Ma Rainey's Black Bottom. Um, and I remember thinking, like, oh, that, that'll, that'll be interesting. I kind of like blues music. I don't know much about it. And for the sake of this podcast, as, as the great Stuart Lee once said, I've, I've done no research. Um, <laughs> I've, I've listened to a couple of songs. I've watched the movie. Um, it's as boring as I remember it was from last year. <laughs> um, it, like, I put it this way, there's nothing wrong with it. Just mm. it, it just sort of trundles on through. It's, it's there. It's present. Yeah, I, I must admit the first time I watched it, I really enjoyed it and I was preparing to do a podcast where I really solidly defended it, but a bit of the air has gone out the second time yeah. around. I think because the things that are good about it are the things that are obviously good about it, specifically mm-hmm. the writing and the acting. Yeah. Those are like dazzling on first contact. And once you get past that, 
there just isn't much to to really justify a second watch i think yeah it's it's very i mean that's sort of typical of a lot of sort of oscar nominated films is that you, you get one viewing out of it you enjoy yourself and if you go back you kind of just you're not going to get the same experience. It's mm. not a, a timeless film, you know. You no. can't keep going back to it. It's, it's not like I don't know. It's not Airplane. <laughs> you can't keep going back to it. It's not Airplane. <laughs> um, no, but it's you know. I think especially sort of. Uh, I mean, the, the past few years, the Academy's kind of liked movies where music plays a key part. You know, you've got La La Land, you've got Whiplash. Mm. The, the the structure of the movie is based around music and the act of creating. And I think Ma Rainey gets that right. I think it does that really well. But what it lacks is sort of, you know, like you said, once you get past the writing and the characters and the dynamic between them, what really is there? It's, mm. it's yeah. There certainly, what, what there certainly isn't is a, a sense of the time. I mean, we understand the social conditions of the era we understand the role that race plays in these people's lives we understand the role that music plays in these people's lives but we understand it because we're told it it's not one of those films like the films that paul thomas anderson's making now where you can like almost feel the atmosphere of a different time period that isn't there yeah no no it's i mean you can you can dress up the, the 1920s of America with as much iconography as you want. If if it doesn't feel like the 1920s, it may look like it. It might it, it's a nice bit of wallpaper, but if it doesn't actually feel like the area and the people are actually coming to life, then you're kind of fighting an uphill struggle. It's it's the inevitable mm. loss there of you've tried and failed to make a, a period piece of, of a time that's you know very important, not just musically, but sort of the the, the cultural shift in America at the time. Yeah, it was in- incredibly interesting to look into. Because you have in the 1920s this emergence of a black middle class which hasn't existed in America before and you have some vicious responses to that. You have the revival of the Ku Klux Klan, you have the Tulsa Massacre, you know, there's... Um, it-, it tends to be downplayed in favour of the 60s when movies are made about civil rights because i guess yeah. the the 60s you can at least put a happy ending on it the 60s you yeah. can at least say well the legislation got passed but exactly looking, yeah. looking yeah. back at race in america in the 20s is a very very dark process it is it's and i, and I don't think the film does a bad job of sort of capturing that i just think again it, it all loops back to that it it looks like the 1920s but it doesn't feel like it and if it doesn't feel like it how are you meant to express the very emotive structure of what is this film i mean mm. at the very core of this it's it's, it's a it's a story of sort of race relations and the, you know the, the fight against everything and it's it, it doesn't work if if the film is kind of just ironically for for a film about soul music it is a bit soulless like there is no mm. sort of ability to make the iconography feel alive to feel sort of interesting and it's a shame because it is such a rich period for culture. Yeah. And it's strange, really, that, that I mean, everyone uses the word stagey in response to this film. And far be it from me to, to sort of strike out on new critical territory. Um, but it is stagey. But it's strange that that's a problem because when you look mm-hmm. at the structure of it, it should be able to exploit that claustrophobia of a single place setting you know yeah 
it is about a group of people who do not like each other, who are stuck in the same place and can't get out anytime soon. Yeah, exactly. And it's, you know, I, there's so many films that sort of take the recording studio or that one room spectacle. It's like, I always think when we did uh, Love and Mercy about the Beach Boys, the, the recording studio scenes in that were the best thing about that film, just seeing the process of making music that has had such an impact on culture. It's, it's great yeah. to see. It's it's one of the best experiences I've had with music-related films. And it's strange how lacking that can be sometimes with Ma Rainey's Black Bottom. And it it's because I think that they, they do fail to capture that claustrophobia, even though the characters are literally close together. There's still a sense of, well, the world outside is whirring away and you're getting... Because it's trying to, you know, shoehorn in that iconography that it's, it's filled the process properly. Because outside the window, you know that everything else is happening because they need that to happen to express claustrophobic points inside. Yeah. And it, it, it is a hard line to sort of straddle. I, I have, you know, I have sympathy for uh, George C. Wolfe who directed this. It, it's a hard sort of balance to get. Um, what I don't think helps is that, you know, you've got so many sort of, not throwaway lines, but you've got that much underlining it because there is a lot to process about that period that it kind of just gets itself lost. It, it gets itself tangled up in so many different experiences that it, mm. it just doesn't know where to go with itself. And that's a lot to ask for a 90-minute movie. That's, that's a lot. Yeah. We, we should uh, explain a, a bit of the premise because there's a band in the basement of a recording studio who are rehearsing songs to be recorded with Ma Rainey, a great blues singer who at this point in her career is kind of on the slide. Her protege, Bessie Smith, has eclipsed her. Smith was known as the Empress of the Blues, and I think if anything's going to give you an inferiority complex, it's knowing that the kid you trained is now called an Empress. but there is one person, the corner player, Levy, who is the Chadwick Boseman part, who has some new ideas, who has some new songs that he thinks he can sell and who has a new arrangement for the songs that they're recording. And that's sort of interesting, that, because Levy is kind of a music movie type, isn't he? There's always the young yeah. Tyro who's like yeah. got hot new sound that's going to blow people's minds. And it sort of, it does play out a bit like that, but not entirely, I think. Yeah, it, it has those moments, those sparks. And I think a lot of that comes down to it's Chadwick Boseman. And it's, yeah. you know, a lot of that is clicking with him just being a very good talent to have on screen. I mean, it's like, you know, I, I remember going to the cinema to see 21 Bridges and he was sort of the, the shining star of that mess. So That's it, a it's, very dull film, 21 Bridges, isn't it? Yeah. I, I went to see it and it was like five at night on a Saturday and I was the only person there. <laughs> so uh, I think it did well getting that Amazon deal. But um, I think when you've got someone like Chadwick Boseman on, on screen, it, it, it really does ele- elevate sort of the script. It's... Yeah. His performance is fantastic. I, it's it's one of the few shining moments that I have on on rewatching this film. Is is he actually sort of is is the best person there? He does a lot better than um, Viola Davis. Who? That's interesting. I I do like Viola Davis's performance. Yeah. I, I would agree that Bozeman is probably the most remarkable aspect of it, but. Um, I do think Davis is very good as well. I've always had a soft spot for Viola Davis ever since she was doing like 
just tiny bit parts in them. Yeah. I mean, Stephen Soderbergh against Soderbergh's version of Solaris. Uh, oh yes, yeah. she is extremely good in that. I thought. Yeah. And, I think for me, it was seeing her in Ma Rainey was just such a shock because the last film I'd seen her in was uh, Widows, which yeah. was unbelievable. She's fantastic in that, and it's sort of. It does kind of capture that sort of leading role mentality that she has because she's a very, very good leading performer. Um, and it's just a shame that around these really good performances and the really good script is that just an inability to cope with how much is going on. Yeah, it's funny this because it's one of those lead performances where Ma Rainey's screen time is not actually that much. And yeah, it does. No, it's... <laughs> It draws into question the Academy's sort of criteria for considering something lead or supporting. Yeah. Wasn't it, um, I mean, the infamous one's Anthony Hopkins, isn't it? He was best actor and he was on the screen for about 15 minutes. Yes, yeah. Which is, <laughs> I suppose <laughs> I suppose it's, it's a, a conversation of impact versus literal running time, I suppose. I mean, yeah. It, Silence of the Lambs, for instance, it's like 15 minutes of Anthony Hopkins, but it does feel like his presence is in the whole film. With with Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, it, she's in the title at least, you know, that, that'll yeah. do. <laughs> it's <laughs> You never... The, the scenes with Viola Davis are great, but there's not enough of them. There, there's no sort of sense that she's... There's no presence of her when she's not on screen. When, when you see mm. the musicians fighting back and forth, there's no presence of Ma Rainey there, whether or not she is on screen um a lot of that comes down to sort of how the script ties itself together with different subplots and things like that um but i just there needs to be either more of viola davis in a physical presence on camera or you need to make sure that the the sort of wishes of ma Rainey and what she was wanting to do at the time are underscoring the arguments and the infighting and i don't mm. think either quite works I think in a strange way, she could have had more impact if she was on screen even less, because there's a couple of scenes that have been added to August Wilson's play where you see Ma Rainey out in the real world. And I think I, I, I can see the idea behind those scenes. I think it helps that we start off with her giving this amazing performance and you do understand why she was such a big deal. But it's sort of like, it, it is a bit like starting a production of Waiting for Godot with, you know, Godot getting on a train. Um, <laughs> because so much of the tension of the first act is about people waiting for Marini and waiting for this kind of regal presence to present yeah. itself in the studio. And having a couple of essentially wordless scenes, even though I like them as scenes, just punctures that tension really because yeah so the tension there is that they are waiting for her to see they're waiting to see Ma Rainey for the first time yeah. the audience should be waiting to see Ma Rainey for the first time along with them it's it's I mean it's it's simple little things like that that make such an impact and it's really mm. quite strange it's like if we're waiting alongside characters who are tense we're going to feed off of that tension we can't feed off of that tension if we see her just sort of wandering around going Oh yeah, it's a lo lovely, lovely day, isn't it? It's like <laughs> it. it I, I understand the need to. I mean, again, it's sort of the battle between he either has to show off the iconography to set the scene for later moments, or you get the tension of characters who are worried. Yeah. And I think he gets, you know, it's a gamble either way, but I think he gets it wrong. I think it, yeah. it would be much better to go with that tension. 
I mean, aside from anything else, the scenes that they have added reminded me very much of when you're watching a Shakespeare adaptation and suddenly there's a scene where absolutely no one talks and everyone goes out of their way to remain silent. And you think, why is that happening? Oh, yeah, this wasn't in the original play, wasn't it? And <laughs> nobody wants to write iambic pentameter anymore. <laughs> It's it's an inevitability. You can't get around these things, but I just think that there must be something that, that yeah. you can do to sort of rein it in, almost. It's like, if you want the tension, because the, the, there are ten scenes in Ma Rainey, mm. especially, I mean, the, uh, you, you can't escape the tension of the final third. No, absolutely a lot of that, not. No. A, a lot of that would be built better had it been for those opening moments where you're waiting with the characters while they're, you know, absolutely terrified. Yeah, and it's yeah. it's it's the right build up in the first and second act that need to happen to make the third act so much better because the third act is probably the best of the three. Yes, yeah. it's where it all comes to a head, but it comes to a head a lot worse than it should because of the first two acts. It feels more jolting and less inevitable, yeah. doesn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think that third act, as you say, is terrific, and I don't think that Chadwick Boseman's performance needs special pleading. I don't think it's good because he died young, but I think when he is like crying out to God and asking God to strike him down, there is an extra power to that because you're looking is, at someone yeah. who was dying when he made it. Yeah. It's, um, I think, uh, you know, it's uh, a lot of performances when you watch them. It's like if you watch an old film, like a John Wayne film, you know John Wayne's dead, but it's you know, you just see him as a performer. I think with there are very rare instances where you're like, that's their their death has left an impact on that role. Yeah, yeah. I think Chadwick Boseman in this is one of those where it's you, you can definitely feel that there's something more to it, and it, and it's just a shame that this great performance is contained in a film that was a bit naff. It's mm. it's it's kind of the the back and forth of it. You've got Chadwick Boseman probably probably is his career best. I, yeah, I, I mean, it, it was yeah. a tragically short career, but. That that's one of his best films, mm. um, but surrounding him is people that are feeding that, people that mm. are sort of feeding that tension, making sure he gets that sort of spotlight hitting moment to put him towards best actor. And I don't know, I remember the controversy around that, and I remember yeah. thinking at the time, it's like, well, you know, Anthony Hopkins probably did give the best performance that year. That's fair, and I never really understood it. I never really understood. I, I obviously it was you know tragic that he died and he didn't win an award, but. I don't think it's it, it negates his performance. I think it, it strengthens it, if anything. His final performance is an Oscar winner, uh, an Oscar nominee. It's, you know... Oh, it's... yeah. I mean, you obviously have to factor in that the Oscars are A, really silly bullshit that means yeah. nothing in the long run, and B, it's basically my equivalent of the Olympics. It's like it's the one <laughs> year, time in a yeah. year where I get really into the horse race of this stuff and yeah. start, like checking out who's got the best odds at the moment i mean yeah it's you know it's i mean i think this is the first academy awards where i've not cared I, yeah i'm happy to see spencer got a nomination but in, in, in a ceremony where don't look up is nominated for so many awards do you really want to win one like what, what would be the point if anything it's a stain rather than an award like honestly just this is, I'm pretty sure this is the first podcast we've recorded since the Oscar nominations came out. The listeners will have already heard a very awkward chat with my colleague, Mark Harrison, where we review licorice pizza from the standpoint of, 
boy, I hope this gets Oscar nominations or we're going to look so thick. Um, but... <laughs> you know what? Because I, I was meant to do that one with you and um, there are no cinemas near me that were showing it. But you know what they are Scandal. showing? That, that They're showing the 35mm print of Memoria, which is like gold dust over here. Yeah. I, like, why, why <laughs> can I not get Paul Thomas Anderson's Licorice Pizza, which is, you know, a commercial release that should be in every cinema. I can't get that on Nightmare Alley, but I can get Tilda Swinton's latest project where it's not going to release. I, that is absolutely bananas. I mean, I love I Memoria, <laughs> but if you ask me what is the less accessible film, Licorice Pizza or Memoria, yeah. it's not a difficult question, is it? No, no. It's. I mean, when I used to live in Sunderland, it was literally before cinemas closed before the pandemic it was they were still showing frozen 2 in like march 2020 yeah. and that's how bad it got around me and it's you know i i looked at the screenings last week and all that's playing now is jackass forever and i want to see that but i'm not traveling 40 minutes to see a film that's playing twice in a day it's, yeah yeah it's madness but i mean that's the beauty of netflix isn't it and i yeah. <laughs> Ah, well, yes, that's interesting, because this is a Netflix release, mm. and I think the original idea was that Denzel Washington had struck a deal with HBO, or HBO slash Warner Brothers, this enormous entity that exists now. Yeah, wasn't it like his, he had a 10-picture deal with HBO yeah. or something? It was mad. Like... He did, yeah. Um, <laughs> but, you know... But, Warner Brothers were probably happy to do something where there won't be people agitating that they release an as yet uncompleted director's cut. Um, <laughs> oh, no. But part, yeah. of the, part of the plan with that was that he was going to do August Wilson's entire century cycle of, I believe, there's uh, seven plays, um, of which this is play five. Uh, he did Fences which is the first one, also starred Viola Davis, got her Best Supporting Actress at the Oscars. And then they switched to Netflix, which, I, I mean, Netflix isn't the same thing as straight to video was in the olden days, but it's, it does... It's getting there. <laughs> <laughs> it's, what, Texas Chainsaw Massacre? The, the editor of that film twice gave it to the screening audiences, they all hated it, so they thought, Netflix will buy this. So they packaged it up and fired it over Netflix. Now it's an original. It's uh, it's 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 the beautiful game. Um, <laughs> but at, at least there's you know with with Ma Rainey's Black Bottom when you see Netflix on that you don't immediately think oh no you think well look at the quality on the poster you've got yeah Chadwick Boseman you've got Viola Davis and you've got Denzel Washington producing that's yeah. a lot of talent there you know absolutely yeah yeah. I wonder if maybe this whole thing wouldn't have been sort of shunted from pillar to post if they'd gone with their original plan for the next one or they, if they'd moved that forward because um, the next one they were going to do was the piano lesson, which is still going ahead. It's going to have uh, Samuel L. Jackson and John David Washington in, uh, which is a pair that I'd watch in anything. That's, yeah. Yeah. But, That's fantastic. Uh, Originally, though, it was going to be directed by Bammy Jenkins, and I do remember thinking, well, if anyone can crack how to make this look like a movie with a capital yep. M, it's got to be Bammy Jenkins, but he's dropped out, sadly. I don't know who's doing it now. Um, Just get George C. Wolfe back. You know? Yeah, fine. He did, he did a bang-up job of Ma <laughs> Rainey, you know? It'll, it'll, it'll do. 
It's, somebody, um, it's, it's some of the things are going to be hard sells. I've got the list of the Pittsburgh cycle <laughs> oh. up here, and there's one called Radio Golf, which, to my mind, is is two of the least cinematic words in one title. <laughs> yeah, I can't unless he's going to go down the Happy Gilmore route, and I don't think that's a wise <laughs> choice. Um, yeah, I mean, that's a bit strange. But also, mm. what I think is strange as well is that you know Denzel Washington. He's a director and he's a performer as well. And he's a quite a good director. Yeah. Um, why is he not just directing these himself if nobody else will take them? Why doesn't he just plant himself down and say, look, these are my projects. I'm going to make them. Like, they're going to be surefire awards contenders. You yeah. Know? I mean, you, you look at Fences, that won a fair deal. Ma Rainey, all right, didn't win all of its big nominations, but five Academy Award nominations and two wins is pretty good. Yeah, it did well in a lot the of the ceremonies running up to... Uh to the Oscars as well, yeah. Hmm. No, it's quite strange. Um, in terms of how it depicts the real Marini, um, I think it's a, it's a pretty faithful version. I mean, it, it is a shame that like this, every single film about Marini has to be about her on the slide. She's appeared as a character in DeVita's film, Bessie, which is about Bessie Smith. And so the fact that it's about Bessie Smith means that Ma Rainey has to be the sort of the false after her Prince Hal, really. Yeah. Um, and now she's here, like at the back end of her career. But I think it does well by her. And I wonder, in a previous era of Hollywood, I think they would have been very antsy about the sexual aspect to this film. And that's... Yeah. That would be a shame because the sexual aspect is a pretty huge part of Marini's music. Yeah, and it's uh, just to go back to that point about sort of the the fall being so mm. commonly attributed to Marini's adaptations. Do you think that's just sort of a bit ghoulish? And you see that a lot with biopics about musicians. I'm, I'm thinking Walk the Line more than mm. anything else, where a lot of that is sort of toiling in the the disaster essentially because it's the most interesting bit, I suppose, mainly yeah. because there's more to talk about. Nobody wants to see somebody succeed and succeed and succeed. It's why Tom Hanks will never have a biopic. And it's <laughs> it, it's with Ma Rainey, there's that much disaster going on around her. It's such a, you know, at, at the end of it all, it's horrific what happens. But um, yeah. it's, you know, people want to see that rather than, oh, wow, she essentially cultivated a new genre of music and be, mm. became such a, an icon for a time period. And it's that's that's very interesting, obviously, and, and seeing the process of that would be interesting. But for the average viewer who's like, oh, what's on tonight? Saturday night, pop a film on. The, to them, it's like they want to see sex and violence and music as well. It's that's the trilogy, isn't it? It's the triple sex, yeah, violence, music. It's it's a shame though because I, I do think Marini lived a very interesting life. She had a lot of good songs, and it, it was it was very nice because. You know, when you asked me to do this podcast, I was terrified because I'd not listened to any of her music. Yeah. Um, but stuff like Blood and Booze is fantastic. It's it's mm. it's so nice. And it's, you know, I've always had a nice little soft spot for blues music, um, but more the jazz proportion of it in the 1950s and 60s. Mm. Um, like Otis Redding and Miles Davis. I enjoy that music. It's really nice. And it's it's the lack of lyrics I like. I think I just like to listen to the 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 sort of, insanity of jazz yes <laughs> it's 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 marvelous but that 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 sort of creativity is explored a bit in Ma Rainey I, I do yeah. think they get that a little bit right 
that largely comes through with Levy, who um, I think does have this interesting arc in terms of his music, where at the, at the start, you expect him to be the guy who's figured out the hot new sound before anyone else. And that sort of turns out to be the case, except what he doesn't realise is that the people around him are only interested in this hot new sound to the degree uh, where they can sell it to a white artist to record yeah. a sort of uh, denuded, toned-down version of it. And even though Levy is a pretty unlikable character in a lot of ways, you feel awful for him because he is genuinely creative. There's that, there's that fantastic <laughs> bit where he has sex with Taylor Page's character on a piano. It's banging around, going, dang, 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 and they think, oh, wow, he's invented free jazz now. <laughs> he's an innovator at the best of times, is Levy. Um, no, you're right. It's He's probably the worst character of the bunch just because of I think it's one of those things where it's a character that knows he's talented, but he's not yeah. being listened to. It is, yeah. it, it, it's a literal case of he's just born in the wrong generation. He has a lot to offer, but the most popular music at the time is pushing against what his idea is. Yeah. And it's, I mean, again, it's, it's a fantastic performance. And I think a lot of that comes through with sort of Toledo, who's played by Glyn Turman. Mm, I, I yeah. definitely didn't look at my other monitor to check that. <laughs> um, yeah, Glenn Turman plays the leader. I think that performance is great. Um, yeah. And I did watch the uh, the little mini documentary Netflix did, and he hosts that, um, yes. what you call it, A Legacy Brought to Screen. Yeah. Um, and that was very good. It was, sadly, better than the film itself <laughs> because it, it takes them half an hour to sort of say, this is why we made the film. This is the importance of this culture on the modern era of music and the modern era of creatives in that field mm. and why it works and why we wanted to bring that to the film. And it's like, well, just, just say that next time. That's, that's easier than trying to, you know, pull it out in 90 minutes and then thinking, oh my God, we probably should have made this three hours. Because well, to be honest, is, yeah. it's, it's one of those things where film, as films are getting longer and longer and more, like Licorice Pizza was like two and a half hours, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. To see a 90 minute film getting nominations for academy awards is it's just it, it's insane it's madness <laughs> but it's, it's one of the things about making a film about blues is that i now think the music is so far in the past that it's very hard to make a drama about it and have the audience understand yeah. what the stakes are if you made a film about blues in the 1980s even the 1990s you would at least have an audience who would watch it and think ah this is where rock and roll comes from that's the music i like but now rock and roll is kind of an antique form as well so i think like the best uh portrayal of blues i've seen on screen this century is did you ever see that mini series martin scorsese did in the early noughties miniseries yeah oh yeah. is this the one with um clint eastwood directed one and yeah yes yeah i've seen bits of that because i was just going to mention clint eastwood actually because he did a film with forrest whitaker in the 1980s bird. which i can't remember the name of and i'm googling it now yeah bird bird yeah. was quite good um and again it's just to, to riff on your point about it being the right time that's the right time it's 1988 yeah. it's just you're, you're almost in the 90s the beastie boys are about to take over prepare yourself but then you've got the blues and it's, it, it has, I mean, 
it, we're coming up on a hundred years since these recordings in Ma Rainey's Black Bottom took place. Yeah. I imagine the people that were actually around for that time, they're not anymore. You know, yeah. It's, yeah. It's, it's one thing to adapt the early stages of music because it is very interesting. It's very rich, but it's, it's figuring out how to make it, you know, ad- adaptable, but also keeping the faith of, what that music was about it's about keeping the sanctity of that but also make sure a new audience are like oh this looks interesting and that's yeah. a very hard line to sort of follow so what they have to do is sort of up the drama bring the big names in mm. and then sort of trick an, an audience into thinking oh well i've learned something about a music that was from 100 years ago which yeah. is great and it'll have to happen more and more you know <laughs> I, I hate to think in about 40 years time because we always see like the nostalgia trips, you know, the eighties is very popular now with the fluorescent lights. Yeah. In in twenty years time, when like the Oasis biopics come out and, <laughs> and blurs off in the background, it's going to be very difficult, and it's going to be even more difficult for music of the nineteen sixties because they've already been adapted. That's good and dead and buried. Yeah. But when you've got people like Bob Dylan or Joan Baez or Patti Smith, how are their adaptations going to look in 30, 40 years time? Because that audience, yeah, there'll there'll be people like me and you who are still around, but the, the actual audience that grew up with that music aren't there for it anymore. Yeah, you would have to link it into something that exists at the time, which yeah. is one reason why, as you said, in the 80s, you had this sudden range of jazz films like Bird and Round Midnight and a few others like that. And um you can see that in the popular music of the time. You've got people like Shardy in the 80s, whose roots are very obviously in jazz. So that made sense to an audience. I think if a director made a film about jazz now, I suppose you could probably do it as kind of, if, if you could kind of link it into Kamasi Washington or Sons of Kemet or someone like that. But you, you would have to work quite hard i think to yeah. paint it as something other than an old director's indulgence yeah it's i mean to put on the commercial hat for a moment it's it, if you make a film about jazz artists in the 1920s you're not going to make much money no like, <laughs> it, it could be the best film ever made and you're going to rake in about half your budget at the box office mm. which is why i suppose i mean ma rainey's black bomb was what 20 25 million to make yeah, something like that. So selling that to Netflix, we'll never know how much it would have made. It's... No, we'll never know how many people watched it. We'll never know <laughs> anything about it. I'm not sure I've watched the film thanks to Netflix's oh, yeah, I... obsessive secrecy. <laughs> it could have just been a dream. I I don't know. <laughs> but it's it, it's sort of the... It's a shame because it would be nice to sort of figure out what the, the effect is, what, what profit they've made, what what are the margins for the success of Ma Rainey's Black Bottom? Mm. If, if we've got to translate the profit into viewing figures, then what is it? Yeah. Because I, I, I don't imagine, I don't think Bird made too much money when that came out. Um, I will mm. check that though. It did not. So it was made <laughs> on a budget of 9 million and it made 2 million. Um, right. Yeah, fair enough. But again, I suppose it's, you know, it's Clint Eastwood, and Clint Eastwood does very much whatever he wants. Yeah. Um, but but the the sort of you know the pressure is off a little bit because he's a firm household name. I feel like as film shifts into that more commercialized stance, and you've got streaming platforms, it's going to be harder and harder to take those risks and actually survive them. 
yeah you know, if, if Clint think... Eastwood were an up and coming bloke that yeah. did Bird now they'd think it's it's back to straight to VOD with you yes and that's it I think it, it's it's always been kind of a commercialized environment but I think one of the things that's shifting now is you're seeing this move away from an either when Hollywood films were sold on stars which means that you can get a film like Bird made if a big enough yeah. star like Clint Eastwood wants to do it uh, to an environment where films are sold on the basis of subject matter and what they're adapting, uh, which as it becomes very, very hard to do with something like this. I think the one angle that you would have to make something like this relevant, which is is kind of in the film, it, it's there. It's maybe not as front and centre as it, it could have been, but it's there, is to deal with the aspects of race and sexuality that yeah. feed into conversations we've been having now and that, you know, you can sell it on the basis that this film would just have been impossible to make in a previous era. If you'd made it in the 60s, you might have still had people who felt a certain nostalgia for blues music, but it would have also meant selling a movie about a queer black woman in the 1960s and, you know, good luck with that. Yeah, that's unfortunately that probably wouldn't have worked no. in the sixties. Um, I, I do think it's it's good to see that these people are brought to the screen, whether or mm. not it's got an audience. Great to see that you know. I mean, it's you think of all those pivotal performers and artists who haven't been brought to the screen. It's it's nice to see that another one is being checked off essentially. Well, the one that is always kind of glaring to me and the one which I think it's hard to really view this as anything other than squeamishness about sexuality is Dusty Springfield because yeah. I have seen a number of iterations of the 1960s nostalgia cycle and each one has brought a slew of biopics in its wake, but that one has just never been touched. Yeah, it's... It's a shame as well because Dusty Springfield's very, very good. Yeah, and absolutely. I, I can't. I mean, I, my my faith isn't sort of rekindled in seeing a Dusty Springfield biopic by uh, the Pamela Anderson one that's coming out soon on <laughs> Disney. But it shows that they're willing to take a couple more risks when it's you know, I mean, the Pamela Anderson scandals and the sort of sexuality of that mm. topic. It's that's on Disney Plus, so it, it's kind of. I feel like producers are starting to take a few more risks, not because sex sells, but because they, they just think it's part of the biopic. If it's there, it needs to be adapted. And I think that's, you know, quite faithful and quite, we're lucky that that's going to happen. But I don't think Dusty Springfield will get a biopic anytime soon. And it's strange as well, because you think of all these musicians that have sort of battled demons and drugs and everything mm. in between. There's no problem adapting that. I think it's the, the squeamishness of it. Yeah, yeah, you know? absolutely. You know, there is, there is certainly a lot to be squeamish about in Ma Rainey's life. I think my favourite fact about her that I found during research is that she was arrested in 1925 uh, for, and this is a direct quote, and it's just breaking my brain trying to figure this out, arrested for an apparent lesbian orgy. <laughs> now... For fairly obvious reasons, I have never been to a lesbian orgy, but I, <laughs> I imagine it's pretty clear-cut whether or not something is one. Yeah, the word apparent in there has has, has thrown me a bit. Um, yes. 
What do you mean apparent? <laughs> I'm just oh, officers, it's not what you think. <laughs> they just do cops at the door saying, now I'm no expert, but... <laughs> <laughs> I suppose it's, you know, technology hadn't taken off at that time. They didn't know what they were looking at. I don't know. <laughs> It's true what they say. Straight men literally do not know what lesbians do. They could have gone in there for a bagatelle evening and just got the wrong end of things. <laughs> They're all sat around playing boggle. Ah, there's apparent lesbian orgies on in here. We've got to get rid of it. Marina, you're coming with us. It's... <laughs> it is, I mean, I, I, I've not done much research, but... It's kind of tragic that you know she was only fifty three when she passed. Yes, yeah. it's, it's it's one of those things. I mean, it's synonymous with sort of musicians that they do die a bit sooner than most. Yeah, particularly like, you know blues musicians. Yeah, and I, do you think that has anything to do with what blues music is about? It's a very emotive output. It's very upsetting. It's very tragic, but it is quite beautiful and wistful. Mm. I think you know you can't disentangle it from the kind of lives that are being sung about. You can't disentangle it, certainly not in the 1920s, from race, from poverty, from addiction, from all of these things that do like massively cut someone's life yeah. short. And when blues music was first marketed with people like Lead Belly in the 1920s, part of the appeal of figures like Lead Belly and Robert Johnson was that, you know, they had real criminal convictions. They were scary dudes. People liked that. So, yeah, it's not entirely surprising that the blues genre has more than its fair share of early deaths. Yeah. I mean, it's it's that, the um, what you've just mentioned there about sort of the, the almost the tough guy personality. Mm. It, it's very literal for blues music, but it would be copied by artists who didn't have a tough tough persona or didn't have run-ins with the law. Yeah. You, you think of someone like Johnny Cash, who's so synonymous with, like, Folsom Prison and the San Quentin performances. The, the man was never convicted of anything. The man was never arrested at that period. He was he was clean cut. He was a, yeah, very, yeah. He, he was a God-loving Christian. <laughs> He had a, not... a he had a major scar on his stomach, but it happened when an ostrich kicked him. Yeah, it did. Um, yeah. I, I actually just finished his uh, autobiography, and he was talking about that. It's like I, I don't know where the tough man mentality came from, and I think it was from something like people would cheer at the right moment, and then everybody would say, "Ah, well, he's one of them." And it's not; it's just they happen to cheer at the right moment when he says he shot a man. To yeah, death. I think w one of the things you've got with blues music is this really ticklish issue which you, you know I, we've seen during our lifetime with some of the conversations about hip-hop as that becomes more and more of a central part of music um, but that idea of marketing black sort of hardship and black yeah. criminality to a majority white audience and it catches people in a bind that obviously there are plenty of black artists who would rather not be marketed in this way, but once it becomes so successful, it becomes inescapable. You end up, as you say, with yeah. artists who've had no particularly tough background and no run-ins with the law, pretending that they have, because that's what sells. You know, people have this morbid fascination with the figure of a young artist, particularly a black young artist, who was in serious danger. I, I remember when 50 Cent came around. There's no way you can tell to me that 50 Cent 
got big because he's a great rapper because he transparently isn't but all of the press at the start was like he's been shot nine times you know yeah it's the figure around it that makes Mm. the music sort of propelled to the next level i mean you kind of i mean if you look at the realm of pop right now you kind of don't get that pop Mm. right now to me is just sort of a a strange entity because you've got no personality and no real difference of music between people like Ed Sheeran, Justin Bieber, Ariana Grande. I don't, I'm going to sound really old when I say this, but I genuinely, <laughs> I don't get it. Yeah. Like what is it about them either personality wise or musically that people are fascinated with and find engaging? Because, you know, what I think of sort of the, the artists I'm into, they're either very good musicians like Elvis Costello or they've got mm. a lot of sort of, great ideas about music and are continuing to do that like Jarvis Cocker so there's sort of the the spectrum we're on where does you know where does Ed Sheeran fall into that who has just won a Brit award for best songwriter of the year in a year (laughs) where Bob Dylan is still making music they thought Ed Sheeran's the man for us he's built the Lego house now he's built the bloody Brit awards I But seriously, I, I don't get it because for me, it's music is either about personality or it's about good writing. You can either have both or one. Yeah. And Ed Sheeran has neither. Not a, a, there's a, not to just focus on Ed Sheeran, but a lot of pop artists now, the very popular chart toppers, have neither. I mean, I don't get it. It's but funny it, but if you look at the 20s, it's, you know, mm. Ma Rainey had personality. She had passion in her music. And it's, I, I don't get it. Yeah, it, it's funny because I think... There is a slight figure now which exists among the very elite media class and nowhere else, but they are the elite media class, so we all have to suffer through their paranoia. Um, There is this tether of marketing someone who's a bit too wild, you know, and and you will talk that certainly there are some very bland pop stars out there, and you've just mentioned several of them, but I don't think the market is like against someone with a bit more yeah. personality i just think there's this terror of actually investing in someone like that but it, it always strikes me as very odd when you talk to like middle-aged journalists and they go on about how are oh, the young people today they won't accept anyone unless they're 100 percent perfect and if they do something that's even slightly wrong you know they'll cancel them and you think where does cardi b fit into this equation exactly <laughs> i was just about to say I don't think Kanye West is the most level-headed mind to <laughs> grace music in the past 20 years. I'm pretty sure people like his personality and his music. Um, yeah. That's probably the best example of it, really, is that Kanye West can say he's going to run for president, but also release a new album and sort of reap the benefits of both. But it's because of the acceptance of his personality. I think it's a lot of it comes down to whether or not a person likes the musician. Like, yes. I don't like the Gallagher brothers. I don't like Nola Liam Gallagher. And as a consequence of that, I really don't like their music. And it's, I don't like Kanye West as a person, but I think his music's all right. Mm. And, and I think that there is that level, isn't there, where to go back to Cardi, like she has done and said things that anyone else would get ripped apart for. I, yeah. I love Cardi, but that's just the truth. Um, oh, yeah. And I think part of that is because as soon as she released Bordak Yellow, there was just a part of people's heads that went I will forgive you anything for this song. And yeah. that's how it goes. It's it's ultimately not that different from how it normally is. It's just that the dressing has changed. People will yeah. say that they've stopped 
liking someone because they made this political statement or they, you know, didn't support this movement. And what they're actually saying is they didn't do this and also they didn't release music good enough to make me ignore it. Yeah, it's it, it very much comes down to how much talent you have to have to avoid the consequences of being a bit of a dick. Yeah. And it's, uh, you see that a lot with artists, really. Well, it's, you? It's, uh, I mean, you mentioned Kanye. That's what his career runs <laughs> off, right? <laughs> yeah, it is. And it's it, like he'll he'll tweet out something daft and then every now and then we'll drop an album. And it's sort of that people have accepted that as the new normal. Yeah. But I mean, it, to be fair, it was around in the 80s and 90s as well. You know, yeah, yeah. There, there were so many pop star controversies. I mean, <laughs> where to begin? But I, no, I love it's... Neil Young, but it would be fair to say that he spent the entirety of the 80s blotting his copybook in a variety of embarrassing ways. Yeah, and it's, I, I, I think there is sort of a reflection on that at least, and I, I don't believe that there's anything for artists right now working at the top of the charts to reflect on in 20 years' time when they are no longer in the spotlight. Because the, the pop star mentality, that doesn't last forever. Eventually, mm. they'll be shifted out for something new. You know, It's like when Britpop died and the Spice Girls sort of just beat its corpse. Yes. That, they exploded. But then they fizzled out. But they did give birth to something new, and that was girl groups. So mm. the birth of the Spice Girls gives you girls aloud and the sugar beards. They then dominated the charts. And then they were moved away. And then it, it's a cycle. And I'm really nervous to find out what the next bit of that is, because who is getting inspired by Ed Sheeran? I want to know so we can <laughs> stop them, because that's not good. That's not good. Well, you think the counterpoint to this is I think music is always more interesting in those times when there is massive generational change and the people who were norm who normally exert an iron grip over the charts don't quite know how to respond to that. Yeah. You've had that situation of uh, pop music being entirely managed from the top back in the 2000s when every single year there would be an X Factor Christmas number one and that was just how it worked by clockwork. And it yeah. was awful. And, and now there's like, there is a new generation who older generations don't quite understand and they have their own pop stars like Lil Nas X and Billie Eilish who were like very successful but also of outside of that heavy yeah, yeah. industry part and can do what they want. And I think that's going to be fun. You know, I, I don't know if it's going to be a movement on the level of other times when yeah. the marketing machine has broke down a bit, when you got things like Punk and Acid House. But I think there is something there that is more interesting than the kind of total mechanical industrial process that pop yeah. has been throughout most of the 21st century oh definitely i think the best example i can think of is sam fender who saw yeah. like very young 20s appealing to people who have nostalgia for essentially what is 10 years ago yeah and it's it's working really well because again he's like he's he's not hit quite the top but he's got two number one albums and he doesn't feel like he's in the same group. He doesn't feel like he's anywhere close to the popularity or the knowability of Ed Sheeran. Mm. Despite probably, you know, he, he did a tour and he, he went to London and everything. He went all over the place. He did a countrywide tour. And so was Ed Sheeran. But it's, you know, yeah, same number of dates, same level of crowd. But they never feel like they're in the same category, despite the fact that they are both pop artists. Like, as much yeah. as Sam Fender is incredible and he's a 
trailblazing indie artist that's going to have a grand career. He is a pop artist. He is popular. He's he's sort of inevitably going to get a chart topper as a single. But it's it's the sort of the personality behind it because when you think Ed Sheeran, I I, I now think of uh, his bit part in Yesterday. <laughs> and just I, I don't know anything else about him. I don't know anything about him. Yeah. And I don't know anything about him from not just listening to his music, but also from seeing his appearances. I don't know anything about him as a person. Whereas Sam Fender, or, or just to link it back to what we're on about, Ma Rainey, when you listen to the music, when you when you see their pers- personality and their persona come through, you learn more about them because yeah. they're creative people. And I'm not saying Shane, I'm not saying Ed Sheeran isn't creative. I'm just saying that his music doesn't feel personal. I don't feel yeah. like we're learning something intricate or intense about him. Not because he doesn't want to share it, but because it's not commercially viable. Well, the classic instance with Ed Sheeran is when he like spent ages traveling in between albums and he came back with Galway Girl, uh, a song which, if memory serves, observed that the Irish like Guinness and dance a bit. So, you know... They say travel broadens the mind, I guess. But... <laughs> you can only broaden small minds so much. <laughs> but the question is, I guess, at the root of it, it, it's not are you, so much are you creative or are you interesting, it's are you assimilatable? You know, if the machine comes knocking, do you answer the door? And it would be interesting to see that film about Bessie Smith, partly because I, I love Queen Latifah, she plays Bessie Smith in it, um, but I would also like to see this story from the other end of the telescope. Like, did Bessie Smith hit big because she was capable of playing the game a bit more than Marvane, yeah. or was there something else? There are so many artists that sort of will refuse to play the game, and then they mm-hmm. just sort of... It's not as if they don't have hits, but they don't take that next step because the next step is worldwide fame. Someone like Madonna, like, yeah, that big. And it's rather telling that a lot of artists actively say no thanks. And it's, I think with with, with what you've just said there, it's, it would be interesting to see the other side of the spectrum because Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, it shows someone that's sort of engulfed by their own ego and their own power, even though it's faded entirely. It's yeah. that scene where she just refuses to start the recording because she's not got a drink. Yes, yeah. The little things like that, that really play up the fact that one, she she is still tripping on the power she no longer has but two has not yet realized she doesn't have it anymore. And that's a really yeah. great comparison to make in a film like this. It's again, it's Viola Davis used sparingly would make that seem so much nicer and so much grander because essentially you have an artist that walks in and says, where are my requirements? Yes. Well, we don't have them. <laughs> Why not? And it's, it, it's, it's that admission that the power is gone, that, yeah. that Ma Rainey's Black Bottom kind of fails to focus on. Because they're more focused on sort of the creative process and the, the actual terror of what happened, um, rather than the artist at the heart of it, who kind of feels like an odd choice to sell the movie on when she's, you know, not quite there all the time. Yeah, yet I guess is still sort of about when you've sort of signed up to this project of filming all of Pittsburgh cycle on the basis of textual fidelity, you can't really change the title, but. I do think it is it is misleading. It's not a movie about Ma Rainey. But um, yeah. she is a very powerful presence. And part of that is just because Viola Davis is brilliant, you know. Um, 
But I, I also love her anecdote about getting fitted with the padding for it because she's significantly heavier than Viola Davis is in real life. And she just said, it was great. I felt really sexy. I could go into a room and just take up space and knock people out of the way. I loved it. I mean, that's a good contrast to, again, it's the, the power to go into a room and take over immediately. Yeah. Was something Ma Rainey could do. But at this time that the movie's taking place in, she couldn't do that anymore because it was moving on, the music was moving on, and she'd lost her power because of her protégé. And it's, yeah. it, it, it's, it's such a nice power contrast that just Wolf doesn't adapt it too well. It's, it's, it's a bit lacking. Where, where is it? You need that real intensity. And I suppose it would have helped if they'd had, like, I don't know, I hate to say it, but like a before scene where it's like you yeah. get to see that power because a lot of audiences aren't going to know really about that. She's still dominating the room. It's just that the room's getting smaller and smaller. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and it's it it, it it's kind of nice to see that you know it's not a bare bones cast, but when you're actually in those isolated moments, it's it's quite you know quite grand rooms with just a few people in it, and they're yeah. they're kind of just sick of her shit really yes. at, at the best of times. Yeah. Well, uh, any closing thoughts before we wrap up? Um, nah. <laughs> no, I think, <laughs> no, I think, I mean, firstly, thank you for inviting me to this one, because this was sort of, it was good to experience a new musician who I had heard of, but not engaged with. Yeah. Um, that was a grand experience, because Ma Rainey's a very great talent. Um, it's just a shame the film doesn't quite explore that, almost. It yeah. is, like you said, misleading. Um, but I do think there's enough scenes from Viola Davis to warrant it being sort of an interesting experience for those that are interested in this genre. Um, I don't know why Netflix thought it would appeal to their user base of 16 to 24 year olds. But... <laughs> Netflix just think, let's fling shit out. Who cares? What well, it is. Texas Chainsaw Massacre is coming out soon. <laughs> Netflix have a policy of saturation marketing everything on their front page, unless they it's do. an Olivier Assayas film, in <laughs> which case they'll bury it to the fuckers. That's the thing, though. It's like, I mean, 10 years ago, VOD was massive. And yeah. now streaming's about, like, Bruce Willis still makes movies. They're just hidden. <laughs> yeah. it's, it's terrifying. You have to be a Willis archaeologist to find oh. out about them. <clears throat> It's 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 a dire dire system. <laughs> it's truly, it's horrifying. Well, listeners, uh, if you enjoyed that, you can get bonus episodes of Pop Screen on our Patreon at www.patreon.com forward slash the Geek Show. Uh, you can also tune into our social media at Facebook. Twitter and Instagram, uh, we're always at TGS underscore The Geek Show. But until next week, that's been your lot. I've been Graham. I've been you. And we'll see you later.